Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Recognition of gambling addiction and the harm it causes has come a long way. Gone are the days when public and even clinical perceptions of gambling addiction focused on the personal responsibilities paradigm. But in terms of treatment, support, prevention and even stigma, we still have a long way to go. This week's podcast guest, Tony Clarkson, is the Vice President of the Psychotherapy and Counselling Federation of Australia and a board member with the Southeastern Melbourne Primary Health Network, where he also chairs the Clinical and Community Council. He currently works as the Principal Clinical Advisor at the Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation, where he provides clinical advice for a statewide gambling addiction service system. He also continues to work in private practice as a psychotherapist with long-term patients who present with trauma, addiction and relationship issues. Stay tuned as Tony joins me to explore where we are in terms of screening, treating, preventing and understanding gambling harm where it sits within the AOD and mental health systems, and if this is the right place for it. Tony, welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for taking some time to talk to myself and share your journey with our listeners. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Sam. Tony, was it Irish accent? Scottish. Scottish, Scottish, okay, so apologise for offending. (laughs) So tell us, Tony, how did you come about to be in Australia, but tell us, where did it start for you, your journey, as far as being involved with gambling and the addiction sector. So in terms of how I came to be here, I think it was part midlife crisis and part sort of my wife got a job. We used to live here 25 years ago. We were backpackers in Australia, like a lot of a lot of Brits, and went home and had kids and got married and did all the grown-up stuff and, and then realised maybe some unfinished business. So my wife runs an arts programme and she was asked to come over and run an arts programme for a hospital here. And I came over and ended up working in gambling. Um, I didn't really know... A lot about it before I came here, trained as a psychotherapist in London. So it was a six year training and worked in safeguarding and social care. So worked with a lot of young people experiencing a lot of a number of different issues like gambling, but also other addictions as well. So yeah, so came over here and thought, well, I'll, I'll just be a therapist like I had been in London and then ended up working for Gambler's Help in Victoria. Um, gambling treatment services are, are branded as Gambler's Help. And like I said, I didn't know 
I didn't know a huge amount about gambling. I had a couple of family members who I think probably had issues with gambling, uh, now that I look back on it. But I quickly quickly picked up a lot of information about gambling because Australia has the worst gambling problem in the world. Is that right? Yeah, so basically it's uh, it's right up there at the top of the leader ta- leaderboard. It's, I think it's about 1,300 roughly on average lost for every every person in the country every year and that ranges across states but that's roughly the kind of average so yeah i mean there, there isn't there isn't there isn't official data for for china technically gambling's illegal in china but but of all the other countries australia's australia's number one so yeah so i learned a lot about gambling quite quickly that's really interesting how you got into gambling specifically if you go back to london when you were working in psychotherapy Tell us about that experience and and as it relates to the UK, what sort of issues you were seeing over there and is it similar to what you've seen in Australia? It was similar in some ways. I mean, the issues are the same because, you know, people are people obviously and, and issues like complex mental health and relationship issues and grief and loss and trauma, they're pretty much the same everywhere. But I think what's different is the the system and the, the structure. So one of the, the things that's just taken as a given really in, in the, the teams that I worked in in local government in London was that everything is multidisciplinary and it's not even called multidisciplinary because the expectation is that it will be. So, you know, you work in a team with psychiatrists, child psychotherapists, social workers, housing officers, police, a youth offending. So a whole, a whole mix of people really. So that was the main difference. The main, the main difference really was the kind of the system around you, but also I think the the difference here in professions, so in terms of professions here, psychology is really at the top of the tree in terms of promotion through government. But in the UK, it's 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 very well respected, but so too is psychotherapy, counselling and a number of other things. So slight differences in, in the sort of structure of the system and also the makeup of the workforce. Really interesting. And have you seen, when you came to Australia, did you know that Australians, the gambling issues in Australia were what they were when you first came? No, no, I didn't at all. I, I, it, was, it was news to me. And, and, and to find out that we had a dedicated treatment system just for gambling was, was quite a surprise. But that spoke to the fact that there's clearly a bigger issue than there is in some other countries. But at the end of the day, like I said, when I, when I started working as a gambling counsellor, I didn't know a lot about gambling per se. But as it turns out, like with many addictions, the root cause is often trauma. So... Because of that, then I'd, I'd done a significant amount of work with, with young people and their families in, in the UK on trauma. So often, I mean, I worked as a gambling counsellor and I still do. I still see clients now. And often you'll get people coming for two years weekly and they'll mention gambling three because that's the symptom. But actually the root of it is maybe trauma, abuse, neglect, or, you know, a whole load of other things. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how it seems to have panned out. Wow. It's, I guess if we go to... The sort of harm that it's causing, so gambling addiction and the harm that it causes the people in their, in their circle uh, of, of social circle, family circle, what have you. Tell us how we've seen that change over the years that you've been uh, involved in gambling and the addiction. Sure. So it's, it's kind of become, it's become a bit more focused in, in one area. Not that there isn't harm in a lot of different areas, but we've seen a gradual decline. And, and I, I'm generally speaking from a Victorian perspective, because obviously that's where I work and, and work for the Victorian government and we, we you know, we, we gather data on Victorian gambling. So, but it's, it's kind of matched across other states as well. It's just, I don't have the specific numbers for other states, but basically what we've seen over the past few years is like a, a gradual decline in the number of people who gamble, but an increase in, um, in losses in particular in pokies. 
So you've got less people gambling more money, essentially. And that's that's increased throughout the pandemic. So the pandemic has seen gambling companies, in particular online gambling gambling companies, double, triple, you know, by by factors of, of three and four, their 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 profits and their income and losses over the over the course of the last two years. So less people gambling, but they're gambling more. Or yeah. or less less people addicted to gambling. So and I suppose in terms of addiction, what we're what we're talking about with gambling is a relatively small number. So okay. there's a there's a kind of paradigm that's that's that kind of the responsible gambling problem gambling paradigm that we're kind of trying to move away from because what we know from recent years and and research that we've done on on harm and public health in general is that although in Victoria, for example, there might only be thirty eight roughly 38,000 problem gamblers. So people who are clinically uh, diagnosed using a screening tool called the Problem Gambling Severity Index, among others. Although there's only that small number of problem gamblers, there's actually closer to half a million um, people who are actually harmed. And for every person who's harmed, there's there's about six or seven other people who um, experience issues. So in terms of changes, what we've seen is, like like you said, less people gambling more, in particular on pokies, but more people spending money on online because of the, the pandemic. And in terms of harm, what we're seeing really is is the same issues really that we saw before the pandemic, but some of them amplified a little bit because of issues like uh, access to money, relationship and, and family stress and tension. About three or four years ago, we conducted a social cost study, uh, which looked at the cost of gambling to the Victorian community, and it's it was estimated at roughly seven billion a year. Yeah. Seven billion. Seven billion a year. Yeah. Holy dooly. Yeah, it's a big number, and that's broken down into you know psychological, emotional costs, family and relationship costs, costs like legal costs, for example, so police being called to, you know, maybe. Disagreements, arguments, family conflict, family court, a whole load of corrections costs in there. But by far and away, the biggest cost is the psychological costs. How many people are we talking about that have a problem with gambling? So in, in Victoria, like like I said, the, the number of people that are, are classified as, as at the pointy end is about just under 40,000. Okay. And that kind of, it's about 0.7, That sort of stays relatively stable each year. But then you've got about uh, 1.8. Eight percent of the population that fall into the sort of moderate risk category, and then there's about an, an additional two and a half percent of the population that are in the sort of low to moderate risk category. So again, it just depends on where you're at in that spectrum. And and what we often find is that people shift along the spectrum. So often you'll have somebody who might be classified as a moderate risk gambler. They might drop back because they don't have the money to gamble, in particular during the pandemic, or they might increase their gambling because. For example, they've had a tax windfall or they've maybe won some money and then put it back in again. So yeah, it's it's relatively stable the number of people, but but like I was saying, the number the number it's not quite it's not as as simple as just this is the number of people because yeah. there's Constantly a whole load of other Yeah. It's like it's like chucking up as well, I suppose like the name of this podcast. It's like chucking a pebble in a pond. Yeah. You see all the ripples going out and so many other people are affected. I mean seven billion it's still forty thousand people's a lot of people isn't it well that's a lot just that i mean that's the people that are that are uh, classified as, that we know yeah that are, that are really down the pointy end we're, mm. we're talking about half a million in victoria who who are actually oh. um harmed by gambling in some way or another um, that's incredible yeah yeah it's a big number and so the harm that you can place on the community tell us a bit about that and the impact of i guess uh, people that are in their support networks and mm. how that plays out yeah sure so so we at the 
Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation fund a treatment system called Gamblers Help and, and other states and territories have similar treatment and support systems and, and they're, they're not all exactly the same but ours is basically counselling, therapeutic counselling, uh, financial counselling, uh, community engagement and uh, venue support for people who work in gambling venues because people who work in gambling venues are much more likely to experience. So we've got this treatment system and also a prevention sector out there, a whole load of prevention activities. But what you often see is that people who have a gambling issue don't present to a gambling counsellor. <laughs> Nobody wants to come and talk to a counsellor. No one wants to see people like me. They want to talk to their hairdresser or their hydrotherapist or their dentist. So they tell all these other people about, about gambling because maybe it's safer. They might not need to jump into getting some help. So what that means is it means that there's a whole portion of the, the professional pro- population, so allied health in particular, who are being asked about gambling and maybe don't have the skills to, to do anything about it. So they're almost turning to their own networks, whether it's hairdressers, friends or what have you, yeah. to, to share their challenge that they're having with gambling. Yeah. And they feel more comfortable doing it in that setting than actually help-seeking from professional services. Yeah, usually help-seeking is the last thing that people do. People will, will try a number of things first. Self-help tools will be... One of the first ones, so we're, we're about to launch an app later this month called Reset, which is based on CBT and motivational interviewing. And it's basically a, a, an opportunity for people to, to get some help on their own, uh, because we know that that's how people want to get help. But also gambling is heavily stigmatised uh, and gamblers are heavily stigmatised. There's, you know, there's a whole sort of debate about whether or not we ought to normalise the, the experience of, of gambling addiction, because actually the gambling industry does a really good job of... of um, making it seem as though it's completely normal to go out and spend all this money on gambling when when it isn't. The majority of people gamble and they don't they don't have a problem. In Victoria, it's about 57, 60% of people gamble without any harm. So right. it's that, that, that other group that are experiencing significant harms and passing them on to their family members, their co-workers, their, their friends. And that's when, that's when people fall between the cracks in terms of getting support. I mean, culturally, Australia's been... I mean, they've been big gamblers, haven't they? Like it's been ingrained yeah. in the culture from generations. Tell us, I mean, is it, you're mentioning that the fact that the majority of gamblers don't have a problem. So you're saying, are we saying that it's done in scarcity, done in minimal amounts, it's okay for the most part, but it's only with the, the very pointy end that he's saying that take it to the extreme and it's really impacting their life. Are we saying it's okay? Normalising it for most people, it's okay for most people to do a little bit? Well, we look, we certainly don't tell people not to gamble. You know, it's the same way you would... You, it's, a, you know, it's a legal activity. It's an enjoy, enjoyable activity for a lot of people and it's a social activity. And in particular, when you look at First Nations communities and in particular, bingo, for example, is, is a, it's, it's a way for people to come together. Often in remote communities, you know, the local local RSL or the local pokies venue is where people congregate and people come and have, you know, family meals together. And so they're important social social matrices, I suppose, for people to come together. But I think one of the issues is is not so much that it's just a, a small number of people who are, who are experiencing all the harm. It's a small number of people relatively small who, who are experiencing the really severe significant harms and by those and a lot of people I've seen have uh, talked about suicidal ideation or attempts like extreme and severe mental health issues we did a research report a few years back that said that people who present for mental health issues in area mental health services are eight times more likely to experience harm from because of their, their mental health conditions so the more high prevalence disorders like anxiety and depression but also some of the lower prevalence ones like borderline personality disorder is, is causally 
associated with gambling. So basically, you've got a, you've got that that sort of relatively small group that are experiencing really severe harms, but then you've got a much larger group that are experiencing other harms, and those other harms might be things like can't afford to go on a holiday that we wanted to go on this year, so we'll have to scale down, or actually can't afford to pay for my kids to go to the school camp, or pay for my kids to have lunch this week. So they're they're again they're on a spectrum, so they're more severe, right down to sort of things that maybe people would think, well, is that harm? But actually. It, you know, from taking a public health approach, it it does constitute harm. You mentioned the indigenous communities and and the use of gambling within those communities to bring people together. Tell us a little bit about that, and and have you seen that change over your time in your role? I think what we've seen change is the approach to it. So there's there's been a relatively similar levels of engagement. I think we have a gambling harm awareness program uh, for Aboriginal communities uh, called ACT. So it's awareness uh, gambling up. Uh, I'll, I'll get you the acronym. But yeah, basically those communities, it's how we engage with them and it's how we uh, support them to, to get the support that they need. So standard sort of Western models of sort of therapeutic interventions, we know that they don't work with, with a lot of First Nations communities. Culturally, things are done in a different way. So, you know, for example, if someone's going to come along and see a counsellor, which is not that likely, they might bring other family members with them. And that's not maybe the same kind of model that you would experience in non-Indigenous communities. So the approach that we've taken has been a lot more like a brokerage model, I suppose, that, that we we fund a small amount of funding into some services, some of the actuals across Victoria, and we allow them to determine, well, this is what support looks like for us. We know best. We, we work in community. Not, sorry, not the foundation, but the uh, people who work in, in Indigenous services. So they know what, what treatment and support actually looks like so yeah. we allow them to report differently and, and and talk about how they they, they change things differently tell us about i'm interested to sort of find what your thoughts are on this responsibility paradigm ultimately people that are, have an issue with gambling are we moving more away to from the fact that it's their problem their responsibility where are we moving to with it and what do you think about that paradigm yeah, I mean, I hope I hope we are, and I think we are. I think we probably were at the same point uh, a few decades back, and maybe even more recent than that with with alcohol and drugs. So, as an example, well, with the exception of a few jurisdictions around the world, like South Australia, California, most places don't have a gambling court. So the reason I raise that is that you know if somebody's been convicted or stands trial for a crime that's as a result of their gambling, often magistrates and judges will see their gambling as a contributory factor as opposed to seeing it as something that needs to be addressed and sending that person to a diversionary programme. So it's, it's, it's at that level, all the way down to sort of community level, that people still see, well, it's just, why, don't, why can't you just stop? That's what people say all the time when they come into counselling. My, my wife says, or my husband says, why can't you just stop? If it was that easy, then, then people would stop. And so I think one of the, the recent changes, in particular with the Victorian Royal Commission into Mental Health, has been the the establishment of of statewide addiction services and the refocusing, I suppose, of gambling as an addiction, which has its own problems because, you know, a lot of people who who treat and who also seek support don't like to use the label addiction, and some and a lot of people do. So for some people, that's actually well, this really helps me because now I know that it's an actual condition, it's a diagnosable condition, and it's an addiction, and so therefore I can understand it. Whereas a lot of other people feel that, that it's, it's stigmatising to, to call themselves an addict. But I think it's, like most things, it's, it's a lot of it's about education and how much we can educate the public about stigma reduction in addictions more broadly. 
if we talk about stigma for a second around gambling, how we how have we seen it over the last say ten years? Have we seen it? Are we seeing an improvement? Are we seeing more uh, education awareness out there and people feeling a little bit more comfortable being able to talk about it in two prongs? One to their own immediate networks, friends, family, or what have you. But then secondly, help seeking through services, professional services. Yeah, so look, it's, it's, it's definitely changing. Stigma is notoriously difficult to measure in terms of where it shifts on the scale. But I think what we're seeing is uh, definitely more public conversations about gambling, certainly more sporting clubs, for example. We've, we run a programme called Love the Game where we ask uh, community and elite sports to sign up to a charter where they won't accept uh, funding from, from the gambling industry. And we've got over 400 clubs in Victoria signed up to that now, so right down from your grassroots sort of local soccer club where your, your kids will go, right up to some of the AFL clubs, you know, some ambassadors that are coming out and talking about gambling more, more publicly. All of that contributes to reducing the stigma. The, the establishment um, of a prevention sector in Victoria, a gambling prevention sector, is something that's only really happened over the, the past sort of four or five years. And a lot of those projects are about having those conversations in community. And then lastly, I think a lot of the work that we do in terms of behaviour change and the campaigns, a lot of them are about having the conversation was one of our campaigns. It's about sort of people being able to, feeling comfortable to have a conversation about gambling without actually feeling that sort of stigma to prevent them from, from even talking about it, really. The one thing I'd say, though, is that a lot of clients that I still see have said to me quite explicitly, I've got a mental health condition, I've got a, a, a drug and alcohol a diagnosis or addiction, and I've also got a gambling issue, but I'm much more comfortable talking about the drug and alcohol and the mental health than I am about gambling because I feel more stigmatised talking about gambling than I do about the other two. So we've got a long way to go. That's really interesting, isn't it? So, so in some respects, they're feeling more open and more willing to be able to talk about AOD than they are gambling. Yeah, it's, I think it just, what, what, it, what it says certainly to me is that we've had dedicated funding uh, for AOD and mental health issues for, for decades and we've gone through this, this process of trying to, to shift the dial in terms of stigma. Although we have dedicated funding for gambling treatment services, it, it's dwarfed by the, the other issues. But like we were saying earlier, if you look at the, the amount of money that's, that's lost, so seven billion a year is lost, the, the government makes two billion a year in, in, in tax revenue and we're funded thirty eight million a year to, to address this. So we're kinda of, we're kind of we're up against it. But I think until we start thinking about a gam- gambling more broadly as uh, a condition that interacts with alcohol and drug issues and mental health issues, then yeah, then that's well, it's gonna to continue to be to be tough. But we need to think of it in a more integrated way. Thirty eight million dollars worth of funding. That's what we get. We get. Wow. We're funded over four years, so we get roughly wow. 160 million over four years. That's incredible. So two billion a year is what the government's collecting, as far as from tax revenue from gambling, costing them seven billion, and they're spending 38 million on preventing it. And and actually, that's more than any other state. Is that right? So it's it's more than than any other state and territory, and it's more than any other jurisdiction around the world. It's incredible. I think actually the UK have, have recently, uh, the Gamble Aware programme over there has recently been awarded a bit more funding because they've changed how they tax gambling in the UK. But look, the other thing to note about that is that we're, we're really fortunate that we actually have a discrete treatment sector because although, like I'm saying, it still needs to, it's, it's got a long way to go in terms of the level of funding and commitment that the AOD and, and mental health has. But the fact that we've got it at all is, is remarkable. It's, it's, it is a luxury. 
I mean, I was thinking originally when you said those numbers, I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. But then when you said, well, it's world leading, I'm like, oh, maybe yeah. they're really good numbers then as yeah. far as, you know, compared to the amount of money that they would be saving if they put more money in prevention side of things, it's a no-brainer. But compared to other states and territories, you're mentioning it's quite progressive. Yeah, it's pretty progressive, but it needs to continue that way. And, and, and you know, that's that's certainly what we're hoping that we'll – Continue to be funded to do that work, but it's yeah, it's. it's do you need more funding? Well, you could always do with more money. Yeah, <laughs> more money is always helpful. Are you finding, like most other mental health services, that it's under resourced and uh, financed? I think our services are actually pretty well funded. Um, okay. The issue is that people don't know about them so much. Okay. So they don't. They're not aware that there are discrete services for gambling. I mean, obviously we we do our part in terms of advertising those services and promoting them across other sectors. Uh, and speaking at you know speaking at conferences like yeah. this one is part of that, but but we definitely yeah we need more people to 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 access the services uh, because we've got we've got a really qualified and and skilled workforce waiting to speak to people. Tell us about the comorbidity of uh, mental health and the link between gambling uh, addiction. Yeah, sure. So well, like I was saying, we we did a, a study called Problem Gambling and People Seeking Treatment for Mental Health. Well, we we didn't do it. We don't we 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 commissioned research, yes. and so it was done by various different people from Deakin and Monash universities and and they found that, that people who sought treatment for mental health issues were eight times more likely uh, to experience gambling issues and a lot of that's about impulsivity control a lot of it's about sometimes cross diagnosis so quite often mental health clinicians will, will identify a gambling issue um, but it might it might the, the symptoms might come up in other ways so the symptoms might um be experienced for that person are similar to OCD or, or other sort of behavioural issues. So it's kind of difficult to separate them out, which is why I think it's important that we have a sector where it's all integrated yeah. um, and we're able to screen and refer across AOD, mental health and gambling issues. But I think it's also why it's important that actually gambling is is still not completely subsumed within the, those other two uh, sectors because there are differences and and. There's, there's, there's a fair bit of education that I think we need to continue to do with clinicians in, in mental health and AOD. As you, I mean, some input, the integration of services is something that we've needed for some time now. Yeah. How do you think, moving forward in the future, do you think we're heading, we're close to it? Do you feel like we're, there's still a way to go? And if so, what would be your ideal solution? So in, again, I'm sort of speaking from the kind of Victorian perspective, but it's certainly the Royal Commission there has really helped with this. So the Royal Commission has has kind of mandated uh, the establishment of integrated multidisciplinary services. It's also funded uh, a statewide addiction service, so provided about $13 million for a statewide service that will just focus on addictions. So in terms of integration, although we've still got a long way to go, there's some there's definitely moves in the right direction. I think in terms of what I would like to see um, and what a number of other people would like to see is a couple of things really. So there's the... Improvement of sector development, so basically training and, and, and helping people in the AOD, mental health and gambling sectors understand what each other do. There's improvement, I think, that needs to be made in screening, assessment and referral and brief intervention. So we can't just have a whole workforce that, that, that screens and assesses. We need people to do the actual the actual treatment as well. And so I think when those things are done and they are starting to be done more, there's a lot of money on the table in Victoria in terms of the Royal Commission and there's a lot of political will to integrate services. Then I think once we start going down that road, we can we can begin to say that we, we are, we're, we're sort of 
on the journey to having a multidisciplinary approach to gambling, which is really what we need. And so wouldn't you reckon, Will, is there an opportunity to measure that at some point in the future once that's happened and revisit it and go, oh, this, this is now really working? How far away, away from that do you think? There's different levels to that. So yeah. certainly from our perspective, we've just uh, developed an outcomes framework. So for our uh, treatment sector in Victoria, which is what's well, 11 local services, about five uh, First Nation services and about five or six culturally and linguistically diverse services. So for those, for that sector... We have an outcomes framework now, so we're able to say, well, actually, over the course of this year, treatment has improved people's lives based on various scales, and the number of people who have sought treatment has increased or decreased. But that's just at our, our sector level. I think I think there's something that needs to be done at the kind of whole system level, and I think the the certainly the Victorian Royal Commission is is going in the right direction with that. So the establishment of sixty new locals, which are called sixty locals, and they are basically local new local area mental health services that will. Uh, provide an integrated response so for a, a number of different issues um, there, there are target dates for that for the Royal Commission and the Royal Commission they need to report back on what they've done essentially so so there's opportunities I think in 2026 and at 2029 to look back and say well what have we achieved in the last three years have they yeah. been set up and have they made a difference and are these being adopted by other states at the minute I don't I don't know that the the same model has been adopted okay um, but I, I know that, that certainly people are looking at um, what's happening with the Royal Commission in Victoria and saying, well, there's parts of that that we could, we could um, integrate into our treatment sector. It's really the gambling, because you don't hear, and like you said, it's hard, the hardest part is what you were saying before, was reaching the people that need you need to to know about the services, right? Mm-hmm. Because they are, But now they're being set up. It's about getting the word out there and trying to make it known that there's options available for them professional help options that they can come to f- uh, free from stigma to help create better outcomes for people that are experiencing gambling addiction is that correct yeah exactly there's that and the second component to that is i think the role that, that we play and the other commissioning bodies play and treatment providers play in educating their clinicians so for yeah. example we're running a few pilots to ensure that allied health professionals uh, understand how to screen, assess, and yes. carry out a brief intervention. We work with them, and the RACGP has just endorsed our, our, one of our documents that, that goes out to all GPs. Basically, the, the, it's now a clinical guideline with the RACGP, and it basically has a one-question screen in it. And that one question is, in the past 12 months, have you had an issue with your gambling? Somebody answers yes to that, there's a 92% plus rate, uh, chance that they're going to they're going to, you know, they're going to be experiencing some harm. So it's, it's, yes, it's getting people into treatment and support, but it's also making sure when they get there, if they speak to someone who isn't a gambling counsellor, that that person knows what to do with them. No, that makes sense. So as we look at, as we touched on it earlier, but COVID, the impacts of COVID that's had on the Victorian population, have we seen spikes in people gambling or have we just seen the same people gambling just using online instead of going to the... TABs or the RSLs or what have you? Yeah, no, we've definitely seen spikes in, in people gambling. So I think there's been about a 44% increase in uh, online gambling. 40? 44 in, in the two years since the pandemic. The Australian Institute of Family Studies conducted a, a survey called Gambling and, and COVID and that looked at how many people were gambling, were they gambling more, what were they gambling on? I mean, the main one was obviously online. I mean, you had people gambling on really novelty bets, mm. Um like I think there was there was some markets on Belarusian table tennis because people couldn't gamble on anything else. There was no European soccer. Everything was cancelled because of COVID. There was no NBA. There was no AFL. So people were finding something to gamble on. Wow. 
So yeah, it was pretty unusual. There was some strange bets going on out there. But I mean, the land-based gambling like TAB and and the pokies and 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 people who maybe gambled at um, EGMs or pokies at, at casinos that obviously decreased massively because they had to close their doors. So they lost yeah. a significant amount of money. But the winners in that were the uh, sports betting industry. Uh, it's it's really interesting, Tony. I mean, I think I find it um, fascinating to hear about, you know, where things are heading with this. And the Victorian Commission has obviously really helped pave the way for this restructuring, I guess, and and more integrated approach to helping to trying to provide better outcomes for people suffering from gambling addiction. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to, the organisation, uh, and how people can get in touch with you. Yeah, sure. So. We've got a load of things that we're always, always sort of got on the go. So we've got an app, like I said earlier, we've got an app we've been working on for a few years called Reset, which is coming out. It's going to be launched on the 23rd of May, and that'll be in the App Store and the Google Play Store. Uh, it's based on an RCT that was done by Deakin University, so it, you know we know that it has a clinical effectiveness. So that's coming out soon. That's a self-help tool, just another thing that, that people can access. We've got a number of different programs like Love the Game, like our TV campaigns that try and sort of shift the dial a little bit in terms of behaviour change. We've got a load of resources on our website, so gamblershelp.com. For anybody who actually needs some support, then there's uh, 1-800-858-858. It's a national number. Uh, and they can be directed to a counsellor immediately. So they'll get through to somebody right away. But even just help-seeking professionals. So, you know, if you're a mental health professional, if you're working an AOD service and you want to hear a, you want to know a bit more about gambling, then you can go to uh, gamblershelp.com.au. You can go to gamblinghelponline.com. Uh, and you can go to responsiblegambling.vic.gov.au. Well, Tony, it's been really interesting hearing about the stuff that you're up to, but also, I mean, it's it sounds like it's certainly leading in the space as far as the response to gambling addictions certainly within australia but even potentially internationally which is amazing hopefully we can reduce the statistics that say that australians are the highest population of of addictive behaviors towards gambling hopefully that comes down do you see do you see anything many major changes coming up with the political environment yeah a little bit so we're funded over four year periods okay. uh, so slightly different from some de- uh, departmental funding and although yeah there's been some council elections and local elections i think this year is quite a big one for us because we've got the federal election obviously coming up in in may and we we also have the victorian state election in November. So we've got a couple of big big shifts potentially in, in the political landscape. But in terms of gambling, I mean, I would like to think that any 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 political decision makers would recognise that, that gambling is um, a significant issue that needs to be addressed and that any funding would be would be continued. Look, we've been funded uh, since our uh, inception in 2011. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're funded up until 2024, I think. So yeah, we'll, okay. well, we hope so. <laughs> Well, nothing's given, but I hopefully, uh, fingers crossed for you and the organisation, Tony. Is there anything you want to say in closing? No, just pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Um, loving the conference and, um, yeah, looking forward to, to meeting some more people talking about various different parts of addiction. Well, thank you, Tony, and thanks for your support with the conference. I know you guys are big supporters, so we appreciate that, and, and thanks for your time. Cheers, Sam. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. 
Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.